agony and ecstasy. That result, the Japanese ca connection, changed my life. They were absolute monsters, these cars, weren't they? Welcome, 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 race notes, and welcome back to the podcast. Now, we missed out on a lot of endurance racing over our first run of episodes. Sorry. So, we've had our nervous wheeze. We've done our pre-race prep, and now we're all psyched up and raring for a big stint of colossal Group C action to make up for it. The Le Mans 24 Hours, held at the famous Le South Circuit in France, is a major popcorn race for all motorsport fans. It's one the drivers feel they just need to take off during their careers as well as a bucket list event. Just look at the F1 names that have rented down the years. From Sterling Moss, Mike Hawthorne, all the way to Fernando Alonso, Jensen Button, Nigel Mansell. And of course, Kamui Kobayashi. I'm not going to forget that one. Kamui Kobayashi. So joining me on the Kamui Kobayashi fan train is Mr. Steve Whitfield, back to share these memories of Le Mans. How many times have you managed to watch a whole Le Mans then? Oh, blimey. Um, I think my my first kind of uh, memories of Le Mans were kind of around 95, 96 with the McLaren. Oh, very nice. McLaren uh, F1, that, that legendary car, that, that was just at the start of my motorsport um, journey, really, as a fan. And just, yeah, love Le Mans ever since then, really. Uh, kind of watched it on and off for years ever since. So I don't think I've ever stayed awake for a full 24 hours for one, but I think yeah. I've, I've watched many, many, mostly in full, more than I can remember. Um, it gets harder with two children, that's for sure. Yeah. A lot harder. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's one where you kind of get all psyched up and you think, here we go, this is a proper day, let's enjoy this. One day of motor racing. You try and stay awake for the full day and then you just spectacularly fail before midnight, don't you, unless you're there. <laughs> yeah, I remember once I went to a grotty old pub in Peterley where I used to live. And I remember I came back afterwards at sort of normal-ish time, for, well, for the time of people going out on that sort of weekend night. And I found out that the leader was already out of the race and the barriers were being repaired and they were both related to each other. <laughs> so that oh, now I've got to go and find out what's happened here. Yeah, it is one of those things where like you do you kind of wake up, don't you? And then you think, now I've got to find out why there's two new class leaders. Yeah, waking up in here and yeah, finding out about big crashes here or there. <laughs> I've had a few, why, few why is this Audi in the middle of Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're going to go back in time. And we'll start off our little endurance racing nostalgia fest with a big victory for Britain, helped also by late heartache for Germany in a titanic struggle between manufacturers. That's what's made the race so massive down the years, the manufacturer battles. And this race takes us back to 1990, where I was still one year from existing. Nelson Mandela was released from prison and the demolition of the Berlin Wall began, which was probably a relief because they just had to cope with David Hasselhoff doing a live performance of Looking for Freedom on New Year's Eve. That was probably the final nail in that coffin right there. But at Le Mans, it was all change as speeds were becoming frightening around this time. By this point, the risk of serious and just aerial shunts in general in sports car racing was very real. The big news, therefore, before this race was two chicanes were introduced along the Mulsanne Strait prior to the race. We, of course, know about these now, especially our age. 
This was done to reduce the maximum speed of the cars after a Sauber C9 reached over 400 kilometers an hour. I think it was 249 mile an hour Kenny Aitchison did the previous year. So by then, speeds were terrifying in these cars. Visa, in fact, refused to renew the license for the track unless chicanes were installed just to comply with a ruling that was passed by the World Motorsport Council at the time. The ruling added that no circuit licensed by FISA was allowed to have a straight longer than two kilometres just for safety reasons. Now, Steve, this was something people had had to get used to with the old, I'm stubborn, I don't want to change my way. What's the, the danger is there? But we soon did quite clearly get used to it. We mainly knew it for the chicanes, unless we look back at videotapes or played Gran Turismo, where they had the old version of the games. But it was the right call, really, wasn't it? Nostalgia aside. Yeah, it's one of those things where your heart probably says, probably at the time, no, don't change it. But your head says, yes, it's interesting looking back to the kind of quotes and drives at the time. It was kind of very mixed. There was some who were strongly against Punch mm -hmm. Canes and they thought it destroyed the challenge of Le Mans, that the, the whole... That Mall Sam was part of the challenge and the danger of it. But then there'd been numerous marshals and drivers killed in the previous few years. And of course, once that you've had those kind of situations and you're around that riding that fatalities, I mean it's a no-brainer, isn't it? You just can't I think things have changed now in motorsport where yeah, fatalities are just totally unacceptable. Back then it was still it's still part of the game, sadly. It's still really, part it? of the game where some drivers are saying just get on with it, but then there were others who were like, you know, it's just a no-brainer now. It's getting too dangerous. If your tyre blows when you're doing 240 miles an hour, you've got zero chance of of coming out of it in one piece. So, yeah, in, in hindsight, it was the, the, the right decision, no question about it. Yeah, it was the Simpsons old man yells at cloud mean really otherwise. Because it had to be considered, as you said, it's claimed the lives of people like Marshalls. Uh, I think it was 1981, it was um, a few Marshalls were killed in an accident. Jonathan Palmer even nearly got killed in this weekend, I believe it was. Uh, but before that, not even on that straight, you've got the Pierre Levey accident, the horrific uh, car into the pit lane crash. Jean-Louis Lafosse in 1981 was killed as well, Sebring winner. 1986 was Joe Gartner. He was killed, I believe. But what do we think of the chicades as well? Because it, although it did help, they were, as we say, some preferred them. Some had their own versions of it. I think. Well, some thought the the, the chicanes actually made it more dangerous because it it changed <laughs> from just a cruise down the straight, just looking after the car to people going for moves into the chicanes and then obviously it was more demanding on the brakes and things like that so there were some who were claiming the chicanes actually made it more dangerous so I don't think over time you, God, you can't it, please so. anyone can you, you <laughs> no. can't please anyone a absolutely so yeah I mean it, it made it's made the minds a completely different challenge now hasn't it I think yeah. over time it's become more of a sprint 24-hour sprint and with the chicanes in there it's kind of that kind of adds to the aspect of it where you're going deep onto the brakes into those chicanes. But the straights are still long enough. They're still very long straights in between each of the chicanes. So you still get that immersion, even these days when you watch them going down the Mulsanne. But, yeah, so it has made it a very different track. But that's just uh, evolution, isn't it? Over time with a lot of tracks, uh, things change for a variety of different reasons, including safety. And, yeah. I don't think Le Mans has still got enough character even now, hasn't it? So, At least the tyre wall's moved, unlike on any game that you play, where you just hit an invisible tyre wall that just stays still. 
Very, very long and difficult courses, and those chicanes are going to make a significant difference to the lap times. They're going to make braking very hard indeed. But funny enough, Autosport actually reported uh, that the first chicane was, in their words, incredibly bumpy, according to drivers, but the second one was billiard table smooth. <laughs> so already, yeah, it prompted a bit of discussion, including five-time winner Derek Bell, who brilliantly remarked, he said, the guy who built the first chicane must have had a lot more to drink than whoever did the second one. <laughs> and it also showed what racing drivers are like. Bell added that the old mull sand straight with no chicanes, in his own words, gave drivers a chance to relax and check the dials in the car. <laughs> no, I don't know, maybe checking the arches were still on on BBC Radio 4. They were wired differently back then, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, you definitely couldn't call some of the drivers but then saying, could you get to be, you know, some of the dangers involved and the speeds involved, yeah. You've got, you've got to have some, yeah. I mean, you've got to have some bravery to do it. So, um, but, you know, yeah. Full respect to you know to the drivers that were in that era that that were taking those kind of risks. Definitely. Well, actually, for this race, the defending race winners and world champions who were Sauber didn't even bother competing in the Le Mans twenty four hours. This is after the main backers Mercedes they pulled out, left all their toys strewn around Pram the moment it was declared a non-championship race. I mean, of course, now the uh, WEC, the World Endurance Championship, they've added it to their championship, so to their new rejuvenated championship point schedule. But it was often, especially over the last 20 years, just been this non-championship, one-off, magical, jewel-in-the-crown race, hasn't it, really? So I'm surprised that they didn't even bother for this. Well, yeah, because, I mean, even back then, I'd imagine Le Mans was still bigger than the World Sports Car Championship. It's the most iconic sports race in the world. So kind of an odd decision for Mercedes. And it's kind of a case of what might have been, because so Mercedes back then, that that, uh, that car was, you know, still at even today, an iconic car, isn't it? And um, was pretty much the dominant car of that era with the famous uh, Mercedes juniors like Michael Schumacher, Cole Vendinger. I mean, what what might have been if that, that car was in that race and what how different history might have been? Never heard of them. Never heard of those two drivers. But yeah, that that car, I mean, just speaking about the Salva Mercedes, it was a one on games like Gran Turismo that you always wanted to get. And I mean, I, even I've got a cabinet upstairs with some little 143 scale like many champs models in there, other brands are available. And when one of my little girls went up to it, pointed at one, and I said, have you got a favourite? And she actually picked out a Salva Mercedes from 90, I think it was 1989. I thought, oh, okay, she's a Mercedes girl. It's frustrating for the sake of the race because it would have been really, really competitive because you've got Mercedes in there, you've got a silk-cut Jaguar, the other pin-up car, You've got the Nissan R90 CK, which, when you look at it written down, actually looks like it's just called Rock. But it was a gorgeous, aggressive, proper Japanese car. But, of course, Porsche still had the 962. So even against the likes of Spice, with our good old friend Mr. Tim Harvey racing in this race in particular, they were absolute monsters, these cars, weren't they? Yeah, it's incredible. You just list those cars, the Porsche 962, the Sauber, the Silk Jaguar, the Nissan. All, even today, the, those four cars are all, when you think of sports car racing, four of the most iconic cars even now. When you think of on Gran Turismo, what you talked about, those cars are still on there. They're still today, remember, 
when you think of that era, those are the kind of cars you think of. And I think they were all competing at the same time as well. I mean, mind-boggling, really, you know, you know, proper cars and proper manufacturers. Yeah, I mean, just a golden era of sports cars. Even the drivers as well. I mean, you just said if Mercedes did bother to turn up, their lineups would have included Frenson, Joachim Mass, Marabaldi, Carl Wendlinger, and of course, a one rookie, uh, Michael Schumacher, who you might have heard of. I mean, by this point, Shuey was about to race against Mika Hakkinen and suffer an onslaught. <laughs> Macau, little did we know, he'd become a household name a year later. Thank you, Bertrand Gashaw, etc., etc. But in sports cars, you kind of forget that he was there until you see footage of like Duke video DVDs and YouTube clips. You race to things like DTM as well in the 190s at Norris Ring, and he was a rapid little kid, wasn't he? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, just a golden period, and, and the onboard footage from that time as well. Um, it's gorgeous. Yeah, just, just. I think you lose something today in the modern era with the, the stability of the cameras back then. You just get the appreciation of the speed and the bumps, and just it just the looks otherworldly. Well, yeah. yeah. If you want to laugh, anyone. Please, I beg you, listen to Derek Warwick's Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson, purely because there's a bit in it where a qualifying session once, he was massively cut up by Schumacher, who was probably learning his old tricks by then. <laughs> they were they were probably classed as new tricks by then. So, of course, Del Boy wasn't happy, went to find him full NASCAR, Hell in a Cell style, <laughs> found what he thought was him, wound up a punch at the first Mercedes driver he saw. It turned out to be a confused John Louis Slesser going, No, Schumacher, it's Schumacher who you want. <laughs> After which, eventually, I chased him into the back of, um, I think it was a, like a massage room and was about to tell him what he thought. And then you hear this voice he said in the background, which was Schlesser going, hit him, hit him. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful era of stuff. Yeah, that is that is a good listen. With the Silver Arrow saying no thank you to Le Mans, the real battle was now going to be between enormous rivals at this point, Porsche and Jaguar, just like back in 1988, when the big cats shocked the German opposition through reliability and good old-fashioned pluckiness, really. But this one had a little splash of Japanese chaos thrown in by Nissan and its terrifying R90. And with that car, meant that this race also had a major storyline in qualifying. Now, we often debate what the best laps of all time are in motor racing. The list is just mad. It's so many. One of them, of course, we've already talked about on this, which was the lap of the gods of Greg Murphy at Bathurst, who spoke to us in our V8 episode of 2003. If you want to hear that one, Please go and listen back. We've got Senna in Monaco, 1988, of course, where he was about a second quicker than even Prost. So a few wet laps like Gilles Villeneuve in Canada, maybe. Uh, Montoya in IndyCar. Are there any more I'm missing here? I think you've covered it pretty nicely there. <laughs> okay. okay, maybe I'm too much of a nerd. <laughs> but yeah, this one, this pole lap of Le Mans 1990 is outrageous when you watch it back. Luckily, we put up in YouTube in full in, uh, remastered audio as well. So yeah, Mark Blundell takes to the circuit in his Nissan International Motorsport R90. And it was just determined to chuck him into the weeds or arm cores or trees at every single corner when you watch it back.
But why? Well, because it's only had 1,100 brake horsepower underneath it by this point. I mean, it sounds a lot for a car, doesn't it? But it was actually because I had a turbo issue where I closed the wastegates on it and in turn basically upped the ante to shit hundred and fuck. I mean, the lap is outrageous, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's weird, isn't it, when we talk about Le Mans, which is regarded as an endurance race, 24-hour race, and when you think of 1990, the thing you think about is not the race, it's qualifying, and it's just an utterly insane lap, which still today, I think Mark Blundell has said it's like the lap of his life. Like, um, yeah. Just because, I mean, I mean, it was a car that was designed for qualifiers back in the days when you could have qualifying cars, and Nissan would come up with this monster for the for qualifying anyway, determined to just grab the headlines. But as you say, <laughs> the wastegate getting stuck and just giving this this uncontrolled amount of horsepower. It just looked like it was yeah. driving itself, to be honest, and Mark's yeah. hanging on for grim death. Here's Mark Bladell's thoughts after that lap. The full position here, how do you feel about that? I feel very good. For me, it's great because we have car 24. I'm 24 years old. Everything goes together. Uh, for me, it's great. I'm happy for all of us that we're on pole position and I'm sure we're going to do well. He, he well, does say it's his greatest lap, but apparently the Japanese engineers were begging on the radio to tell him to slow down to avoid blowing it up, as he then lapped six seconds quicker than second place man in the Brun Porsche. Just six seconds. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. So I think I think he was told on the formation lap he got on his out lap, sorry, to uh, come to the pits because, yeah, they've got this turbo problem. They thought that the engine was just going to lunch itself down the mall, Sam. But he just ripped the headphones out. <laughs> thought, I'm not coming to Le Mans just to park it in the pit. So he's just gunned it out the final corner, wheel spinning in fourth gear, <laughs> uncontrolled amount of horsepower, opposite lock everywhere, and just had no referee, not done any laps they've got no data set up data on the car so you're just going around in complete blind faith and just guessing where to break guessing how much power he's gonna and torque he was gonna have through the wheels bearing in mind there's no power steering no traction control manual gearbox it was just utterly bonkers when you just think of that to just put all that on the line and then go around and at the end of it, say I could have got another three or four seconds quicker as well. <laughs> just just, just that. <laughs> yeah, it's just absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's no question when you just factor in all the circumstances, then you watch the onboard. I mean, it, it definitely deserves its place as one of the great qualifying laps in motorsport history. Um, I always find it bewildering how people can do things that quick with a manual gearbox. It is just all one-handed and it's just with a clutch pedal, it's just terrifying seeing it like it's hard enough at times just parking sometimes with one hand for some people and then you see them just wrestling it through a chicane with a massive curb just like it's nothing so and of course they we talk about the poor it's a poor poison in formula one now we call it that's now well known with all these new regulations but back then it was just normal i mean he's, he's driving basically a blue and red skate ramp just sort of bouncing around um, at top speed at the end of the straights you can on the videos with no power steering as well, you can you can hear it's bouncing so much the audio's actually cutting out as he's headed into certain corners. So I think it's just more of survival, if anything. Yeah. Poor lad. Well, I think I think he said he reached the top speed down the mall sound with the chicanes of two hundred and thirty eight yeah, miles an hour. Whereas Kenny Kenny Aitchison 
uh, in the sober the previous year with no chicanes. It was only 10, 10 miles an hour more, wasn't it? Yeah, 11 miles an hour more. Goodness me. Um, you know, just crazy. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the car porpoising, not really got any good handling. It's all about brute power and violence. I do enjoy in the Motorsport magazine when they talked about it, they allegedly had a qualifying engine for this round as well, just to try and test it out without the problem that obviously happened. And then Blundell won the coin toss against Julian Bailey to do the main laps. He said halfway around, as we've said, they asked him to abort the lap for engine safety. And of course, disconnected the radio, told them to sod off. And this is what happened. So a lovely old job. But he does say when they said in this, when he got to the paddock, he apparently said that he came back to, in inverted commas, mixed reviews. <laughs> so the European side were elated. And I think kind of mind blowing that we've turned up and done what we've done. Many of the Japanese, though, had said they were probably simmering with displeasure that I disobeyed team orders and put them through the stress of thinking this was all going terribly wrong. But in the same chance, they also got their first pole as a Japanese manufacturer. So take that. Were they in the race? Do you think they were now the favourites or was this just some one-off absolute mad story? I think I, I, I think they never never expected to be fighting for winning the race. It was you all about this so. qualifying. I think Mark himself had said, if they finished in the top six in the race, they'd be really happy with that. So it was all about um, that qualifying lap. And I'm sure whilst a few of the Japanese uh, people on that pit were, weren't pleased at the time, I'm sure in the midst of time, they'll probably look back on that more fondly now because it's, <laughs> you know, when you think of Nissan, it's one of their iconic moments in racing, isn't it, really? Another thing I enjoy looking back at the results is that I say that there was a six-second gap just to second place. The car that finishes third in this whole race was over 14 seconds off the pace in qualifying. So just outrageous stuff. I mean, this was the era where um, reliability was at a premium. So speed was one thing, but it was actually about getting, you know, you could have the reliability in the race. So you could be many seconds off the pace in qualifying. But if you had the reliability in the race, that was what counted. Yeah, it was the kind of uh, win it or blow it up spectacularly era still by this point, which lasted another 10 or so years at least in everything. The pace car peels off into the pit lane. Julian Bailey leads away in the Nissan from Oscar Larari. Then the rest of the Nissan's pouring through. The Yerst Jaguar, driven by Derek Bell, comes up straight away. Jaguars are pretty relaxed about the opening of the race, remembering that it is a 24-hour race. But Bailey and Larari set off as though it was a sprint event. So now, in the battle between Nissan, Jaguar and Porsche, the latter had done their own bit of homework, however, but this was for the race. Brun Motorsport with a lead Porsche team, qualified second with a gorgeous Repsol-sponsored car, another iconic model car I think some people will have definitely treasured. They had entered with a short-tailed version of the 962, a higher rear wing, but only once they'd known that the new chicanes were going to be put in, so they'd actually done some homework. Yeah, this was, it was with the, the chicanes in, it was becoming more of a... Yeah, a handling in a downforce race than a flat out, all about straight line speed contest. So yeah, they they'd done their homework, and I think a few had still gone for the low downforce setups. But in theory, yeah, that high downforce, higher downforce setup um, was probably not a bad way to go. 
need the revised layout. I suppose this was a bit of an independent Porsche team then as well, because the Yerst team were actually being left in the shade a little bit, which probably wasn't going to plan for Germany by that point. But the Brunt team had already felt how cruel Le Mans could be. They'd had a late double retirement five years before that in 1985. That was nothing compared to the disaster that was about to befell poor Jesus Pereira and Walter Brunn in 1990. Oscar Lowry was their quick man. He started the race and was keeping up with the, the top two. The the top two just disappear as well at the start. You can tell uh, it's, it's a Bailey and Lowry. They just go, bye-bye. <laughs> There's a, already a gap of about five seconds after one lap. So I think this was a point where they thought, if we want to win this race at Nissan, we've got to go now. Yeah, I think it was just all about pedal to metal for, for really Nissan. They, 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 they didn't want to go backwards at the start having got on pole. So it was just about, let's just go flat out. They probably knew reliability was going to be an issue for them in, as the race developed. So it was just trying to make hay while the sun shines, so to speak, at the start. Of course, Jaguar at this point, they were kind of hovering in the, in the mid of the top tens. They knew that they were going to be in the mix, but they weren't really setting the world alight. They came in to play later on in the race. But Nissan, after everything that went right in qualifying, they had a torrid time in the race. Car 25 of their trio started from the pit lane, barely made a lap before Gearbox issue put them out. But the other two cars actually battled for the lead. We say one of them disappeared up the road for a lot of the race. But then four hours in, this happened. That is Jan Franco Brancatelli in the leading car, and this is what's happened. Brancatelli in the Nissan hit Aguri Suzuki's Toyota. That is the result, and Suzuki is still in the cockpit. And there's a rise out. Yes, a quick puff of the extinguisher there. Suzuki being helped out of the car. I don't think with any significant injuries. It looks like the main chassis section has remained intact, but clearly a very heavy impact. A major incident involving the lead 24 car which collided with a Toyota of Aguri Suzuki, there's a name for you, in the old nostalgia books. That happened at the Dunlop Curb, the Japanese driver's car and the Armco were absolutely destroyed in the accident. That was a horrible shunt. Yeah, oh yeah, it's sort of a classic Le Mans shunt, isn't it, when you're coming through traffic and, yeah, those kind of speeds. Yeah, we even see it in the modern day, these kind of crashes that happen, they're just truly terrifying. And back then, when the safety was, you know, not as it is today. Yeah. They look, they look like they made a cardboard back then, though. You just see the cars just sort of folding up. I mean, uh, remember the Stefan Seven Beloff crash that killed him a few years before that? That was horrific. The, the full front end of the car, just as it goes into the barrier, just folds itself up. You think, well, oh, yeah, that the lack of safety yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah, that Bella one, yeah, it was a horrid one. When you look back now, how just bad the safety was. I think by this point, Bellof probably would have been a quite a well-renowned Formula One talent, even just yeah, by 1990. Yeah, he was a bit special, wasn't he? I mean, you think of Monaco and, and Senna, that famous race in the Tolman, mm. but Bellof was pretty handy in that one as well, wasn't he? He was actually closing on them as well. Yeah, yeah. He was regarded as a, a big talent back then. His life was cut, cut tragically short. What could have been, eh? But soon, the repaired 24 Nissan and its sister 83 car, they both dropped out of the race through various issues in the night, which by this point then means that gifted Jaguar their opportunity now to just suddenly emerge at the front through this tunnel of fortuitous 
incident to say about Oscar Larari, he probably could have helped the Blood team get a better result out of this, but he sadly fell ill during the race. And of course, this left the two gentleman drivers, if you like, to finish just on their own, which I think two drivers who were there, not even the full-blown professionals, that is a mighty effort to still be second place after 23 hours. Yeah, that's, yeah, for that amount of time and, and such physical cars back then as well, where you wouldn't have air conditioning in the cars and no power steering. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a much more physical challenge back then. So, you know, it's, you know, full respect to to uh, have to do this, those kind of stint lengths and, and get through it is, uh, yeah, impressive. Yeah, well done those lads because they were still second heading into the 24th and final hour of the whole race. And out of nowhere, the lead Jag, which at this point was being hobbled by losing fourth gear, this gives them a chance to try and break the hearts of Jaguar. But with 15 minutes to go, half break struck the Brug car. But the second placed Brun Porsche suffers desperately cruel luck as smoke signals major engine problems. And for the Brun car to have got a result, it needed to get all the way around and actually cross the start finish line at four o'clock. It didn't do it, it's pulled off at the Mulsan hairpin, and therefore what a desperately sad end to a magnificent performance from this team. The engine went pop on Mulsan straight, gifting Jaguar a 1-2 in 1990. And even the Tom Walkinshaw Racing Jag team, even they had sympathy. And rival teams were applauding Pereira as he embraced the crew in the pit lane. It just sucks after that point, doesn't it? It's a horrible feeling. We've seen... Toyota lose a win in the final few minutes as well. It must be a horrible feeling, mustn't it? Yeah, that, that's the one you kind of think of in the modern days. That this is the Toyota one, and, um, and this is kind of imagine a very similar thing back then with just fifteen minutes to go. Yeah, that that's um, as heartbreaking as it gets, isn't it? When you've got through well over twenty three hours of the race, you're in position to win, and the engine goes. Yeah, that that sucks. <laughs> That, that, you know, I think the fact that Jaguars are saying they're, they're, they're sports, I think that just says it all, doesn't it? It does. But Jaguar weren't even without their problems either, despite having four cars, greedy so-and-sos. Cars one and four battling engine dramas pretty much throughout. And when the first car retired, which was car one, a fascinating and slightly cruel tactical change took place as Tom Wilkinshaw decided he wanted to take Martin Brundle out of the retired car, stuck him in car three, which by a stage of this happening was their lead charge. This was all in a bid to help them eventually win the race. Of course, this is all team orders to a new level. And it's the old thing of, they still have this in NASCAR, and they used to have it in F1, where you could just say, oh, you're here. Would you like to get in this car? Come on, do you want to finish it? Yeah, okay, all right. Get in the car, get strapped in, and away we go. It was another example of different era, different rules, really. Yeah, I think Martin Brundle was. I think he was. He was the number one driver in that <clears throat> Tom Walkinshaw run Jaguar team. <clears throat> so he was the trusted guy, and, and when obviously they realised they might have the chance to win with reliability at a compromise, they realised Martin Brundle was renowned as being very, you know, being able to be quick whilst you know good on fuel good on the gearbox, 
they, they realised that that was their best shot in those final few hours, put him in the car. But poor old Alessio Salazar, I don't think he <laughs> took it too kindly, been shafted into the to one of the, the sick Jaguars that's trailing round, laps down. I love that. It's, it's such a pointless answer, isn't it? You'd never guess who would be the person that would be kicked out, if you like. It was, as you say, it was Alessio Salazar of being kicked by Nelson Piquet in the face fame. Edwin Piquet was clearly some kind of crap Eric Cantona impressionist. But you forget he was actually quite handy in non-F1 cars as well, as a lot of people were. I mean, you look at people like Raffaele Marcello now, nearly got to F1, moved to a GT car, and now they're incredibly quick. Salazar had a good career. He had an eclectic career in indie cars, sports cars, F1. Yeah, he's a pretty handy driver, but he's sadly one of those who's remembered. For no real fault of his own, but for the wrong reasons, you know, the PK in 1982 being kicked in the face. <laughs> and then, yes, yeah, I mean, just, yeah, I mean, Corey, you think their chance to win Le Mans and have a bit of fame and have that just taken away by a decision on the pit wall. Yeah, I mean, that's cool, isn't sorry it? for him, don't you? I mean, the Chilean yeah. has transferred to car four instead. So he did still have a, an opportunity, but then that failed to finish as well, much to his own rotten luck. While, of course, guess who trundled to victory? Old Martin Brundle in car three, but this time with Price Cobb and John Nielsen. Uh, it was ended up being, with the disaster of Brun, a 1-2 for Jag, with the second car being car number two, with Jan Lammers, Andy Wallace and Franz Conrad. It's gutting, isn't it, for Salazar? Because he was, yeah. he was, it was there. The moment was right there, and then, yeah. Now we're sat talking suppose, about it. Well, I suppose they might say, well, yeah, maybe if he'd been in the car, he'd have broke the gearbox or something. But who knows? It's uh, it was, you know, these was yeah, these things happen. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm right in saying it, but I, I don't think it was that Jaguar was even the the one was that was expected to win. It was like an American owned car. It wasn't one of the British owned cars, so. Obviously, Jaguar wanted one of the other cars to win. So the, the car that won, typical with Le Mans, how it often is that way with manufacturers, the car that's just there making up the numbers almost is the one that ends up winning as the, 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 their, their main cars break down. And that, that was the case with this one. Yeah, obviously, started the race probably as one of the favourites in the number one car, but that got hobbled. And yeah, the rest is history. Ian, they say sport is corrupt these days. So yeah, Salazar actually said in an article in Autosport, Tom Walkershaw called me to his motorhome. It was just the two of us. He said it was very important for him and the team to have Martin in the leading car. I understood it from a business point of view, but I pledged to him. I could just imagine him at this point just on the floor kneeling, saying, please, you have no idea. I need to get this image of PK out of my head. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you would, wouldn't you? If you, you know, when you realise what's happened, you, you would be pleading, wouldn't you? Just, yeah, stick with me. You, I can win Le Mans here. Yeah, don't take this dream away from me. How dare you? He said, I pledged to him. I said, Tom, this is my life. It's very important to me. This was my big chance. But um, he's, he's a little, uh, very brief quiz. Don't worry, it's not a proper quiz. Uh, who was the person that had to give up his seat? I don't think anyone would guess this either, in fairness. No, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> it was poor, poor Louis Perez Sala who had to give up a seat altogether as the old switcheroo took place, which is incredibly harsh when you're the one person shafted out of what would have probably been 12 drivers in a team. 
But yeah, well, wasn't wasn't he regarded as the as the weak link in that cog, and so hence when that change allegedly. happened, allegedly, allegedly, <laughs> allegedly he was the the one who was maybe a bit not a liability, but. Yeah, the old salvageable, think, salvageable human being. Unfortunately, we'll get rid of the weakest link, so to speak, when the change made, and poor he didn't even get to drive it all. I mean, it is it is harsh when we look at it now as a, a love and peace kind of society of it. But one thing that was definitely true was I think Martin Brundle was massively underrated in the F one world as being probably the best sports car driver at least of that period. Would we would we agree that? Oh yeah, I mean he'd have to be up there for sure. I mean he'd already won a lot, hadn't he? Won I think Daytona already won the World Sports Car Championship, and he yeah he was at well Formula One as well. He never achieved. I don't think he ever achieved what his talent merited. Really, you know, you think back to his days with Senna and F three, how good he was there. And I think he was expected to come into Formula One and be a, a world champion, but it just. Never was in the right place at the right time, but sports cars was where he had his best days, didn't it? That's where he was in, in, in some really top cars and he was able to really show his talent. Yeah, it's it's I find it fascinating that he's only won one world sports car title and this was his only Le Mans win. Because like he he's even said how he thought in his mind he was one of the best in a sports car that ever raced. And to be honest, it is it's fair. It's definitely fair. I mean, he never achieved close to what he was probably capable of in Formula One, just never seemed to be in the right place at the right time. Um, you wonder if, if sport... he didn't do his legs in in Monaco, you know, it was in oh. a Tyrrell. If, if that hadn't happened, I think it could have been a different... We'll never know, obviously, but it just feels <sighs> like that really did affect the trajectory. That could have been fantastic for old man. He had some proper shunts, didn't he? In his career, yeah, did. Yeah, there's two or three in. Uh, I think there's one at Suzuka in Formula One as well. Brazil. The ones where you think, how on earth did he walk away in one piece? But yeah, in oh, sports, of course, Jos Verstappen landed on his head. Yeah, that a miracle he survived that one. Where he just got absolutely whacked with the the wheel. Like, absolute miracle. So yeah, he did have some uh, fair old, and then the the '96 one as well at uh, Melbourne. Some oh, that was a lovely old crash. Car broke. Yeah, I mean, he did. He had some hell of a shunts, didn't he? But yeah, in his sports car career, I mean, he, yeah, again, he was. I mean, he, he had some better cars, but yeah, yeah he was very consistent. Yeah. That's what it was. It was the consistency of yeah. the You just it was almost robotic. He got in at pretty much a hundred percent every lap, rather than just on and off. Yeah. It was just almost perfect every time he went in. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of the very top sports car drivers from that era, he was very good at being quick whilst also using less fuel and being easier on the car. That was a big skill to involve. Yeah. You know, you had to be quick, but also be easy on the car. And and um, so that was a key thing. And, and yeah, I think yeah, he'd already won before this Le Mans victory. He'd already won the World Sports Car Championship. He'd already won Daytona. But he never really wanted to win more, did he? And I suppose it's more just wrong place, wrong time. You need a lot of luck, obviously, with endurance events. As you saw, even with this race, the car was started in, actually broke down, and it's just he got moved into another car. So, you, you, yeah, with Le Mans, you've got to be in the right place at the right time a lot of the time, haven't you? Um, but there's no doubt he was a yeah, phenomenal driver in this area in sports yeah, cars. Def definitely earned the right to be the replacement, if anything. So, 
we'll, we'll allow we'll allow him to get away with that, despite what uh, young Salazar would have said. <laughs> so yeah, it ended up being a Jaguar one-two. Who was third though? What all of the drama in the last fifteen minutes did with the boom Porsche, it suddenly meant another Porsche had its moment to shine from nowhere. I mean, we mentioned uh, Jonathan Palmer had an awful shunt. Well, that Yost car was withdrawn before the race, while another of the Yost cars finished fourth with Hans Stuck, Derek Bell, and Fran Th and Frank Yelinski. And that's a great lineup as well. But they were beaten by the Japanese Alpha Racing 962, driven by some other familiar names. Tiff Nadell of Top Gear, Fifth Gear, and Binning Nigel Mansell off at the Tokushu out fame. David Sears, and of course, two-time BTCC runner-up Anthony Reid. That's a huge result. And we said that they were 14 seconds off the pace, although that could really be about eight seconds off the pace in qualifying based on what we now know. That's a huge result for them. Yeah, a real underdog store, isn't it? Three, you know, kind of pretty well-known names from the British motorsport scene as well. But yeah, that was a, a, good, a good old underdog story to get on the podium at Le Mans. And at that, that, that time, with it being a race of attrition, you know, these are the kind of fairy tales that can happen. So, yeah, it's a great result for those three. I mean, you you know a lot more about single seaters than me, as Mr. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah, as a Formula Scouter. Uh, the Japanese route then in single seaters was incredibly popular and it did produce some unbelievably popular names. I mean, we're talking Schumacher's. Uh, and later on, Sato, of course. But in this case, Anthony Reid was actually going toe-to-toe -to -toe with this, with these lot. It's always been a good stepping stone, hasn't it, to get yourself into F1, I guess. Yeah, the 90s particularly was a, a real hotbed of talent. They also took over like Eddie Irvine, Heinz Harold France, and Nick Asalo. It's a whole group of drivers that went that, down that route into Japanese Formula 3. And then they'd come into Formula 1 and be quick. So it was, yeah, it was a... A real um, a, back then it was a big way into Formula One because I think you got a lot, you got paid when you're out there as well. It wasn't like you had. To, I mean, I might be wrong, but it wasn't like today we're going to raise the budget. You could go out there and have a good professional career. Um, and you, you forget Reedy. Yeah, he had a big career in Japan, didn't he? In various cars and touring cars and GTs and Formula Three as well. So he was, yeah, he he was. Um, Race get some really big names in that era. So, yeah, what did it do to Reedy's career? Well, I asked him, so enjoy. 1990, yeah. I mean, yeah. that result and Porsche and the Japanese connection changed my life. Um, on the back of that result, I was invited over to race in Japan in um, um, Japanese uh, Group C. Mm -hmm. Along with you know big names like Alan Jones, John Watson, I think um, uh, Aya Elg, Anders Ulfsson, um yeah, and of course Tiffany Dell, Derek Bell. Uh, it was just an amazing period. And on the back of the results in Group C, I was then invited to to race in Formula Three for the same team that ran the Group C car. And uh, in 1992, I won the Japanese Formula 3 Championship, and that led on to all sorts of other things. And, um, it, the, yeah, I had six great years in Japan, racing GT, Group C, um, touring cars, Japanese Group A, 
Um, yeah, fantastic. And some of the big names, we didn't know then what we know now. Yeah, I mean, you had um, Michael Schumacher, Ralph Schumacher at times racing out there, uh, Brabham, uh, uh, you know, Johnny Herbert, you name it. The, the, and of course, I won the Japanese Form the Three Championship against Jack Villeneuve and Tom Christensen. Um, and uh, well, Jack went on to win the World F1 Championship. And um, uh, yeah, I'm Eddie Irvine, of course, Roland Ratzenberger. <clears throat> Well, memories. 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 Great names. Um, Eddie Irvine complained bitterly to me uh, one evening. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> um, that he had to take a pay cut to leave Japan and go and race an F1. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Eddie. I bet where the, the Porsche that you raced in, in in Le Mans, I bet that was a... What were your memories of driving that? Mighty to drive. Well, the, the Porsche, it was a great customer car yeah. because... You know, it handled well, it was reliable, it was safe in, in terms of the stability of the car and the wall sound straight at 220 miles an hour. You could literally take your hands off the steering wheel um, and it would still drive in a straight line. And it was balanced and it had a lot of downforce. Mm -hmm. um, given that the quickest thing I'd driven up until the previous year was Formula 3, I think, to be doing 225 miles an hour on the wall sound straight the scale and speed of the event, uh, you know, the track and the, the numbers of spectators. I mean, it's a complete assault on the senses. Um, it, just the whole thing, it was spectacular. I couldn't quite believe it. It was like being in a Hollywood movie. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, uh, yeah, and the things that happened, I mean, Jonathan Palmer had a suspension failure in the Mulsanne Strait. Uh, during qualifying and uh, he was just in front of me and he's he his car just took off and glanced the trees at the side of the track and then bounced back onto the circuit yeah. and it was like an aircraft accident so i mean there was a debris field spread over sort of 400 meters and uh, there was no way through so i had to come to a stop but um yeah my goodness and then uh during the race you know james weaver's car caught fire uh, in the Porsche curves, um, a Lancia Group C car went off into the forest at Indianapolis and set fire to the trees and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen anything quite like it. it it's compared, to, compared to what I'd been racing up until that, well, the previous year at that point, you know, Formula 3, I think, was the yeah. greatest thing I'd driven. Did you did you race? Um, and this is probably me knowing about this car from being a Newcastle United supporter for my sins. Did you race a uh, Lister Storm during the yeah, mid nineties? Lister Storm, uh, ninety five and ninety six at uh, Le Mans, and also Daytona. Uh, that was great fun. I mean, the team. It was just great fun to be involved with the team. And our sponsors, you know, um, Douglas Hall, the son of Sir John Hall. Of course. And, and all his buddies would come over to support us and uh, all the stories behind that. <laughs> not, uh, not something I, I, I can talk about openly, but uh, it, it was just uh, the, 
the, the most fun weekends or weeks racing I, I've had in terms of all the aspects of things that happened. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, uh, yeah, a great experience. And then to race at Daytona. We, we led the Daytona 24-hour race for, I don't know, probably the best part of an hour in the middle of the night. And then we had a problem with the gearbox. And... Um, <clears throat> So by the time we sorted that out, um, I, think we've, I can't remember where we finished, maybe top 10. But um, at one point, we thought we had a chance of winning. Car was certainly quick enough. Yeah, it was. It was. It was, just seemed like such an aggressive car. Mm. I've always got good memories of that car for some reason. Uh, unique, that car, yes. It was. Mm. It was very angry by the look of it. <laughs> <laughs> did you have, um, in your own head, did you have a kind of, end goal of or say i want to be an f1 driver or i want to be in touring cars or was it just enjoying the job at hand really yeah i i didn't have any specific goals i mean mm -hmm. i i i suppose the closest i got to f1 was i had a meeting with um eddie jordan um at silverstone and i said look i think i might have a, a sponsor teed up to write a check Japanese sponsor um you know what are my chances of getting into your car and he wrote me a letter um well, I sort of had it typed up and signed it and said look we admire we think Anthony is the best thing since sliced bread and subject to the right sponsorship arrangements uh you know we'll give him you know serious consideration for the drive anyway about two weeks before I might have been able to sign such a contract, my sponsor went bust, oh. uh, and the rest is history. I mean, Gasho got the was it Gasho got the drive? It was Gasho, from what I heard. And, and then he got locked up, and so it was Michael Schumacher. And the, then you know, the rest is history, as they say. So yeah, Reedy informed me the one instead of Michael Schumacher in a seven up Jordan. How much would you want to get into that time machine and change that one round? Oh, well, <laughs> what a story! What, eh? what, might, what, what might have been if he'd been in that Jordan and uh, stuck it seventh on the grid at Spa? <laughs> who knows what? Who knows what would have happened? So, yeah, how many, how many world titles are we saying? Eight world titles for Reedy? Uh, easily, yeah. <laughs> gotta be, gotta be shooting. So yeah, in this by this point we didn't even have GT cars. In this this was all basically not prototypes but they were coming in a few years time but just group c beasts really there were 49 cars out there which is mental to think of now it's basically like now we have just a mob of hypercars all having a sprint race over a very long time but of course it's the 90s only 21 finished oh, that's classic Le Mans back then that it was an endurance wasn't it now it's just a flat out sprint where a lot of the cars are very good on reliability back then it was a proper race for nutrition wasn't it? and this was the, of course the first year as we've said with the chicanes and that that did actually contribute I think to a lot of the problems with gearboxes and brakes going um, it did actually make the race even more a race of attrition so many big names as well that we haven't even mentioned down the order I mean the person who we've just heard about Bertrand Gashaw, he was actually in this race I think he was with Johnny Herbert in a Mazda, both Mazda went on to win with the old uh, rotary 
noise machine that uh, Johnny still says give him earache as he would. But got in there JJ Leto, Derek Daly. And another thing that was gutting was in car number one, the Jaguar that, of course, we've said went pop. Another person that was in that took a shootout legend to me, David Leslie. I would have of loved course, to see yes. David Leslie win. That would have been just peak for me as a result. Wouldn't it just? That would have been superb. All we needed was Steve Soper in a BMW powered car in second. <laughs> and John Cleland uh, somewhere in there as well. Well, 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 okay, we'll leave that one. <laughs> Fingers would have been raised. We know that. We could go on about that list of the entrance. Just go back and look at it. It's it's outrageous, to be honest. Well, much but like Carl Watts. It, no, it was back in the days where you'd have F1. You don't see it now, do you? But you'd have F drivers, all disciplines would go, even like current F1 drivers would go and do it. It was just get amazing lineups. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we almost, we look at it now and when you see links to people like it, there'll be, someone will be a Mercedes junior or academy driver and you think hmm, while i'm not in an f1 car why don't i go and drive this in a gt race or i'll go to the nurburgring and do a race of the night it's this is why when all the news of hamilton to ferrari comes out and this is literally just conspiracy nonsense for now you get people saying well hang on ferrari have just won at le mans is there a potential gap in there in the future while someone's career's maybe starting to get towards the the limit you think would they wait because you're all on so Villeneuve etc they've all had goals you'd hope it's in, it's in the contract isn't it? if you're coming to Ferrari you've got to drive the high just slot well. it in there just absolutely, mega, absolutely mega wouldn't it if he did that as well commercially it's just it's perfect when you yeah. see drivers even for like cigarette companies like Silk Cut then you just think Martin Brundle dominating a race it's selling us our product it's it's just basic stuff you put in, isn't it? That's why you see these lineups, even in the 90s, people like Alex Verts joining in as well at McLaren. It's all it's all there really just to add to the manufacturer's clout, really, if anything. They're being used, bless them, these poor drivers. It's something that they constantly come back for more, I think, almost like a, not even as a retirement exhibition event now. You just do it because it's fun. And incredibly competitive now. Probably the most competitive Le Mans ever been at the moment, would we say? Yeah, it's getting back to being a real goal near, isn't it? Well, with all the yeah, it's probably more manufacturers now in uh, well in this in this this year in hypercar and GT three. There isn't any other series in the world. It's uh, yeah, getting back to that golden era now. Uh, that's what you want. Lots of manufacturers, lots of top drivers. You know that that that's you know in this nineteen nineties was a you know a bit like that on a different scale. Inject yeah. it into my veins, I say. Absolutely. Oh, what could have been a, eh? but much like Car One at the Mon and David Leslie's chances of winning it, we're done and dusted for the day. Thank you, Stephen. Everyone who listens in, you're all a lovely bunch. So please come back for more. The next one, by the way, is a genuine treat for obscure one-off race lovers. So be back for that one. <laughs>